critical and creative thinking 2.0. This episode is something of a hobby horse of mine. And the reason it is, is because I have worked in education and I have worked in what's called curriculum development. One issue, as every teacher knows, is that every politician, parent, scientist, and in modern parlance, stakeholder, has an opinion about what should be in a school curriculum, what should be taught. Health advocates say nutrition and exercise science. Scientists say more science and scientific thinking. Programmers say more coding. Conservatives say more civics. Socialists say more gender, race and sexuality studies. Everyone debates the content of history, whether and to what extent religion is taught. Half of the mathematicians will say more algebra, the other half will say more calculus, and the other half will say more statistics. Yes, I was joking there. Anyway, all the coercion aside, the indoctrination aside, and in places like Australia, the compulsory nature of everything in the schooling system aside, given this whole unholy system is not going anywhere anytime soon, no matter what many of us say about it, it's worth looking at what could have worked. Or more optimistically, what could work to the extent it can work, even in places where everything is compulsory or coerced. After all, if school students are getting more calculus when they should be getting statistics, or if they are getting a terribly anti-Western view from history and a science curriculum polluted by politics and activism and pessimism about tomorrow, perhaps there is something like so-called intellectual self-defence to be found in more basic skills. Something like critical and creative thinking skills? Well, it's actually all the rage right now in education, let me tell you. It's very fashionable, but then so is almost all the content of the curriculum in schools and universities. It runs on trends and fashions rather too often and in too many departments. Most jurisdictions across Australia, the USA, those in the British tradition, in global institutions like the International Baccalaureate Office and of course in the universities now, talk about how they teach critical thinking and creative thinking. I've actually made videos about this before years ago. I've written about this before multiple times and years ago, but years have passed and a lot has happened over even just the last six years. So I've refined my views somewhat, though not entirely changed the way I phrase things. The underlying ideas are exactly the same, but I need to re-emphasize some things that I thought perhaps went without saying. They don't. I want to look at, critically, what some institutions describe critical thinking as and therefore why I think they're wrong. I'm going to do that towards the end. But this will take me telling you about what I think critical thinking truly is compared to the way it's traditionally taught. Not so much what should be taught in schools, I think that's entirely the wrong question after all. It should be about what someone wants to learn. But if you want to learn what critical thinking and what creative thinking is, I have some ideas for you. And also, and I know podcasters and lecturers and so on use this phrase a lot, and it rarely ever rings true. The phrase is, people often ask me. I've never had the occasion to use it before, but here this really is, if not a question people often ask me, it is the one I think I have been asked over the years most frequently. 
that question is, with regards especially to epistemology, what practical use is any of this exactly? And so I want to speak about that directly. Critical and creative thinking amount to educational buzzwords these days. I have written before about educational buzzwords, and there is a real liability with their use. If you want to read about my aversion to such buzzwords, look up my article on learning. That's www.bretthall.org forward slash learning. A problem with a buzzword of any kind is that a theorist especially in this case an educational theorist, enamoured with neologisms, can tend to co-opt already well-defined concepts, redefine them, and subject them to a certain species of what is called lock-in. Lock-in is not a neologism, by the way. Lock-in is where, unintentionally, a designed feature has some negative effect upon future potentials for growth. The polymath philosopher, scientist and technologist, Jeron Lanier, uses the example of the London Underground train system, which lacks air conditioning. Built at a time when air conditioning was not possible on trains, now that it is, the tubes are simply not large enough for the exhaust required to accommodate air conditioning systems on some of the trains. And so, for now at least... Passengers are locked in to a hot and uncomfortable system for months of the year. Now, Jerome Lanier uses this as an analogy to the way in which social media platforms sometimes have locked-in features. But what does any of this have to do with anything about education? Well, as it can happen out there in the built environment or in the online environment, in train systems, in social media systems, so it can happen in institutions as well. So, for example, in education, sometimes we can define into being some terminology that defines future directions in teaching and this constrains options for what might be learned and how. For example, does calling certain activities undertaken in the classroom, critical and creative thinking, lock in how we might clearly think about these ideas? I am now persuaded schools and universities have been headed down the wrong track on this for a while, and so for anyone still working in those areas, or perhaps especially the students in those places, subject to these fads, should want to pull the brakes, metaphorically speaking, and consider whether or not we might want to widen the tunnel to accommodate some better ideas about what these terms mean. Critical and creative thinking is the way knowledge is actually generated. As many who listen to this podcast regularly will know, how knowledge is generated is the domain of a particular area of philosophy called epistemology. Epistemology is one of the most interesting, important and practical areas of philosophy and simultaneously one of the least well understood subjects we might dare say anywhere because it's just not taught almost anywhere. People who know little about philosophy and have little interest in it can be dismissive of the entire project because they think it, philosophy, is largely concerned with existential navel-gazing and it's all about endless debates in moral philosophy or ethics or metaphysics and ontology which is concerns about what really truly exists or what ultimately there is to know or what the true meaning or definition of a particular word is. And so ultimately the whole project of doing philosophy collapses into nothing more than a clash of mere matters of opinion. But this is all false. And in fact, it's a really significant misconception 
because epistemology especially underlies how you think about everything else. It is the preeminent case of thinking about thinking. And if your thinking is going wrong, then not only is your understanding of science possibly going wrong, and morality possibly going wrong, and history possibly going wrong, but your very own personal psychology might be possibly going wrong. My own interests in philosophy have not generally been about ethics or metaphysics, so often as about how can we come to have a deep knowledge of the world? And this is what epistemology is. It's literally the theory of knowledge, as it is defined anyway in analytical philosophy. And in this area of philosophy, there really is a best theory that we should strive to understand. Not all of what is called philosophy is interesting, by the way. I agree on that much, and will admit much more later on. But much is worth preserving and trying to learn more about, not least of which is epistemology as it's relevant to learning, the subject of this podcast, and epistemology as it is currently best understood and how it applies to having an optimistic view of humanity and life. Oh, and of course, the philosophy of science is absolutely crucial if you want to understand how scientific knowledge in particular grows. But I begin to digress. Returning to our definition of epistemology as the theory of knowledge, we can rephrase it without any loss of meaning whatever to epistemology is the explanation of the growth of knowledge. And this growth of knowledge can happen as a civilization or a smaller community or a corporation, or it can happen inside a single mind of a learner. The processes, it turns out, are the same. Let me explain. There are two absolutely crucial aspects to the growth of knowledge, creativity and criticism. In educational circles, the terms critical and creative thinking have migrated away from how they have been largely and more precisely been used in perhaps the more rarefied spheres where they have been genuine domains of study, controversy and progress over decades. The terms are now synonymous, not with thinking as such, but rather with certain teaching strategies that are more or less fashionable among some educators and educational theorists. Now, I should add that there is a world of difference between a teaching strategy and a learning strategy, as anyone involved in education should know, but in practice never seems to take seriously. It is safe to say that almost all strategies used by teachers to teach students are the former teaching strategies, not the latter, actual learning strategies. Teaching strategies, which are typically ways of, usually coercively, organising schoolwork or ideas on paper, ways of having students respond to questions or complete tasks, whether they move around a class, speak or not speak, draw pictures or write words, Indeed, the very behaviours typically promoted by theorists and cultivated in classes by teachers, these are teaching strategies. These are things that the teacher wants the student to do, or usually not just wants, but instructs the students to do. They are activities, busy work, designed to, and here's another buzzword, keep the student engaged. Engaged means on task. On task means obedient, compliant. It does not mean asking off-topic questions and so on. 
almost everything ever covered in any professional development course or a university level teacher training course completed by teachers and ostensibly labeled a learning strategy is a teaching strategy. Learning strategies are, I will come to later, very difficult to come by. And that is because learning happens best in a free environment where coercion just is not part of the picture. So it happens to be the case that one can deploy every teaching strategy in the countless teaching handbooks and websites and seminars ever deployed, and learning can still be elusive. Why? Because simply naming something, say, nine hats for better thinking, does not mean it is genuinely about thinking. Labelling something does not make it so. Thinking is always a creative process constrained by careful criticism. But, as I say, educational theorists love neologisms. Educational theorists think that if they come up with a neologism, they have actually invented a new idea. They're not alone in this. Prominent so-called public intellectuals excel at this kind of thing. Inventing words. Typically what they or the educational theorists have done is either just label common sense or some older idea or adapted some pre-existing set of ideas for the purpose of naming it a teaching or learning strategy. And the theorist will always give these a name. In the case of education, one might, for example, want to encourage students to become a physics brain, B-R-A-I-N. An idea I came up with when I thought it was the right thing to do. Here's how it works. Think of something about a topic that B bugs you. Then also something that you can R reflect on. And A, another idea related to the one under study. Find something I interesting. And finally, something N negative. You can make up your own acronym. On my own R reflection about all this, I realized this is a scheme far from organizing thoughts it restricted them. Some people working in business or especially the corporate world might be very familiar with this sort of thing. These buzzwordy acronyms, they're all the rage. Maybe some are useful, maybe not. But whether in the corporate setting or educational setting, indeed anywhere one is working, scientific research, music composition, writing, painting, singing, personal relationships or detective work, what we really need is straightforward criticism and creativity. Criticize. What don't you understand? What is wrong? Get to the heart of it. What are you uncomfortable about? That's a criticism. What feels wrong, looks wrong, clearly is wrong or out of place? What is ugly or unkind? What is false? Where's the lie? Where's the deficiency? Once you have done this and succeeded, you have identified a problem. You have an error somewhere before you. You can correct it now. Problems are soluble. You now have the potential to find the solution. And all of this adds up to the potential for progress. You have criticized. But now what? Well, now you have to create. Create. Can you improve on this? And this, we will find, is the harder part. The actually much harder part. But whether it's the criticism part or the create part, we need maximum space and freedom to explore options, and for this reason, in education at least, I have tended to avoid ways of organising thoughts. Our minds, human minds, just don't operate that way, and nor should they. There are exceptions to this, wanting to pass exams, for example. And yes, if that is your goal, those many mnemonics, tricks and techniques can seem to work for some. But we must be careful here. 
we have to separate out the fact that passing exams is not the same as critical and creative thinking. Passing exams is about adhering as closely as possible to someone else's ideas of what is the correct way to think. It is anti-critical. It is not good objecting to questions in exams, taking issue with the premise of a question. Sure, take a risk. Why not? Most will not. Why would they? Certainly examinations and assessment tasks in education generally are antithetical to anything but adhering to or rising to meet defined outcomes, things already thought through. It is thus not only anti-critical, it is anti-creativity. It is not about new ideas, it is about showing that you have grasped old ideas, taught ideas. See the problem? And I must say that what I am not saying here is that the best way to be creative is just to be maximally free at all times with absolutely no rules in place. That's not the case either. That is why criticism exists. It imposes bounds, whether from reality, which is a severe restriction, or your own personal values, which should be quite restrictive, on what it is right to create. You cannot just create a scientific theory that disagrees with multiple independent tests while contradicting what we already know. And you are not free to create good music that more resembles noise. When Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings, he found that he himself was not free to just have his characters do whatever his imagination thought. The world he invented had to be internally consistent. His characters had a history, sometimes already existing in prequels, and he had a rich language and geography that they all had to conform to. This, by the way, is why fans of some blockbuster movies regard some sequels or prequels as objectively worse than the so-called canon. Canon means the pre-existing background knowledge of the fiction. So if the new writers or directors come along and ignore the canon, they have violated the internal consistency, the internal logic of the fictional reality. Some fiction, therefore, is objectively worse than other fiction, precisely because contradictions are always wrong, unless you think logic should not be adhered to, in which case there is literally nothing more left to say. Enjoy your contradictions and your literal absurdity. But again, I digress. Let us now return to the basics. Let us consider what is meant by critical and creative thinking and see if these can help us learn. This is the practical thing. First, yes, critical and creative thinking, true critical and creative thinking, are the very means by which we learn. Indeed, they are the only known means. They are the whole story so far as we can tell. But do we understand that whole story? No, far from it, it would seem. So do we understand anything? Yes, of course, quite a bit. We have some very good, some very true ideas. And indeed, I can put a number on it, in a sense anyway. We understand something less than around half of that story. We understand a lot about critical thinking. We just understand very little about creative thinking. So let's begin with what we know. What we know about critical thinking. Here, I want to cover some of the important particulars of critical thinking. Keep in mind the word critical. It is no accident this word is related to the word criticism, for that is the very technique required in critical thinking. One must criticize. What does this mean? Criticize means what it does to almost all people all of the time, with one caveat. It does not, or should not, 
carry the emotional liabilities and baggage people tend to associate with it. Criticism is a wonderful thing when applied to ideas. It is the means by which ideas are improved. Criticism is about pointing out what is or what may be wrong with an idea. It is about highlighting, pointing out, making obvious the weaknesses, flaws and false assumptions of an idea. Criticism is a broad topic. In science, criticism might, most obviously, consist of an experimental refutation. If the experimental results disagree with the hypothesis, one of three things must hold. The hypothesis is false, or the experiment was flawed, or both. Whatever the case, something that a scientist is thinking about, what just happened there, what is going on, is false. But this is why we are, or at least should be, very careful in science, as careful as we can be. Truly, carefully controlled, well-performed, accurate and precise experiments can be called crucial experiments and can decide between scientific theories. This is the topic of my previous two podcasts. In a situation where two theories make incompatible predictions about the outcome of an experiment, we have a problem. Which one is correct if, all else being equal, they have hitherto made the same predictions about the world? Well, we may be in the fortunate position to design and then perform this crucial experiment, this crown jewel of the scientific enterprise. So, the experiment is performed, and just one of the theories disagrees with the results. So we say it is, tentatively as always, shown to be false. Thus, it has been successfully criticised, and progress is made. This successful criticism amounts to a mortal wounding of the theory. This method of criticism has a simple aim, to show as false an idea. I've written previously about the specifics of how this can work in physics, for example, and for that, look up my article titled General Relativity and the Role of Evidence. This idea of experimental refutation, also called falsification, is essential in science. It's not just a convenient add-on. Be critical of what you hear from some actual scientists, always physicists, on this topic. They are making an error about what science is. But experimental testing, although essential, is not the whole story. It is indispensable, but this is only to say it is necessary, but not sufficient. Far from sufficient. Indeed, many theories never actually need to be tested by an experiment to be refuted scientifically. My listeners will be well aware of David Deutsch's brilliant examples in his book, The Fabric of Reality, where he asks us to consider the theory that eating a kilogram of grass is the cure for the common cold. That is a testable theory. But do we need to do the experiment to refute it? No. And the reason is because we can be critical in another way, another mode of criticism, if you like, less about the scientific methodology of the situation and more about the epistemological fundamentals of what is being claimed with the grass-eating theory, or rather, grass-eating prediction. After all, that so-called theory or hypothesis is nothing but a claim of the sort, if you eat the grass then your cold will be cured. It is a prediction but contains no explanation. Now this idea that some claim is predictive but not explanatory is both eminently scientific and wonderfully philosophical. We can use both words here deliberately to illustrate that at the boundary, the techniques in science and philosophy really do bridge this permeable wall that separates our rational investigations into the world Explanations run the entire gamut of our knowledge of the world, but strictly, predictions are the domain of science, properly construed anyway. 
And even then, good scientific predictions are always subject to what else we might learn in the future that could change what we said was going to happen. For example, a prediction that the world will warm by 3 degrees Celsius in the next 200 years is not an accurate prediction at all if it does not come true. And it might not come true if people do things to alter the course of events such that it never comes to pass that the warming does happen. For example, by sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere using some method yet to be invented or invented in the next 50 years. Whatever the case, if someone comes to you with a claim that eating grass, for example, will cure your cold, does it need testing? No, because it's explanationless. In my discussion with Naval Ravikant on the Naval podcast, look for that, it's called the Beginning of Infinity podcast, we spoke about actually doing this experiment as David Deutsch does in The Fabric of Reality. If you do the experiment, we would need to specify the quantity of grass. And if we specified it was exactly one kilogram of grass, and then we find that eating precisely that amount does not cure the cold, this would not show that 1.1 kilograms of grass would not cure the cold. Or that 0.9 kilograms or any of an infinite number of variations. Although the hypothesis is falsifiable, it is also infinitely variable, and the experiment cannot possibly refute all variations of it. We can imagine some medical crank saying, well, maybe it's 1.01 kilograms, or 1.001 kilograms, and so on. Experiment really is not the appropriate critical tool here, even though it is one of the critical tools in our critical arsenal. So what else do we have? The appropriate critical tool here is the explanation criteria. What is the explanation criteria? It is the simple distinction between whether or not a claim comes with an explanation or not. It's that simple, most especially if the claim is scientific, but not necessarily. In sports, there are often reasons a skilled practitioner does a certain thing, but a fully formed good explanation might be elusive. This gets into the weeds a bit, but basically there are lots of places where the knowledge is inexplicit. We'll ignore that wrinkle for now. Let's stick to science where we can generalize to many other areas. But you can imagine if you watch the Olympics and you see a gymnast doing a fantastically complicated routine, no amount of their explicit instruction of what's going on and why would ever help you understand exactly how to do it. You'd have to get out there on the mat and do it yourself. You'd have to learn the inexplicit stuff by having a go yourself. Anyway. Back to science. So let's apply this explanation criteria to grass cures the cold. What is the explanation of how grass cures the cold? Um, What explanation? Exactly right. Do we even have an explanation of how grass might cure the cold? No. If we did, we would be able to criticize that, for example, by using an experiment. But absent an explanation, that is the criticism. No explanation, that's a flaw, that's a problem. Indeed, in science, that's an error. For someone who comes along and says, grass cures the common cold, or indeed comes along and makes any claim, ask how. If there is no reasonable, satisfactory, good, call it what you like, if there is no explanation, it can be rejected. As David has observed, any crank on the street corner with a sandwich board, this doesn't happen so often these days, but it used to, that the world will end next Tuesday, Well, they have a predictive theory, and it's testable, and it's going to be tested and shown false. Just because something is falsifiable, just because something's testable, doesn't make it a good explanation. Grass cures the common cold, not a good explanation. Without an accompanying mechanism of action, we can reject it without ever doing any kind of experiment, let alone on ourselves. 
This is true of almost all claims made in science and elsewhere. We don't even bother with the experiment. What if it did work? Then we would seek to find out why. And until we had a criticism of the theory, eating grass cures colds, then that would be our best theory, bad as it is, and it would be possible to improve. For example, we might find particular amounts work better than others, and chemists might isolate the actual active ingredient. A story much like this explains the action of aspirin, apparently, that the ancients would chew on the bark of a willow tree, and that would relieve their headaches, and eventually that led to pills of aspirin as a really effective headache treatment. In medicine, once upon a time, it was the case that some treatment was found to work, but it was not known why. And by work we mean better than no intervention at all. But these days, even in medicine, that is a very rare exception to the general rule. There are entire fields of science, from pharmacology to physiology, neurology, and all kinds of carefully practiced and error-corrected surgical interventions, and even where some medicine is used off-label, as we say, there is often a good explanation known by at least some members of the medical community even if it has not been published? One reason for this is that, as it turns out, doctors are very busy people, and getting around to going through the relatively recent phenomenon that is the peer review process is rather more difficult than word of mouth, or these days a more informal review process. Peer review of double-blind placebo-controlled trials is indeed a supposed gold standard of a kind, but it is also the most lengthy and difficult way of showing the efficacy of what might already be known to be a good explanation of efficacy. To be known in this sense has multiple meanings. Someone might already know of a treatment and a good explanation for it before the rest of the scientific community does. Take, for example, the famous case of, and let me plug, Australia here, the Australian doctor Barry Marshall, who had an idea that stomach ulcers were caused by a bacteria and therefore could be cured by antibiotics. Until Barry Marshall, many people thought stomach ulcers, indeed today many people still think they are, caused by stress, anxiety or something like that. Anyway, so the story goes, true story, Barry Marshall swallowed a nasty mix of ulcer-causing bacteria. A good Aussie risk-taker. The crocodile hunter of medicine, so to speak. Anyways, yes, he got stomach ulcers. Now at that point, in pain, and no doubt writhing in agony in bed, waiting for the penicillin or whatnot to kick in and cure him, he knew. And his colleagues knew. They really knew the good explanation. But it was not yet double-blind placebo-controlled and reported in peer-reviewed journals. So the wider community did not know, but he knew, and he would have been remiss had he seen a patient the following week and not used antibiotics off-label for anyone who came to see him and who he diagnosed as having stomach ulcers. All he could say was, I know this works. I did it to myself. Stomach ulcers are caused by bacteria, and I know how and why, regardless of what the literature does or does not say at the moment. And by the way, he got the Nobel Prize in medicine for that, or physiology, whatever it's called. So much is true of any scientific discovery yet to be published or peer-reviewed. Of course, errors can be made and corrected. But here is the point. Until such time as an error is found, that is the best explanation going. An astrophysicist 
who detects a wobble in a star 200 light years away over the course of their three-year PhD and does the appropriate calculations and has them checked by a colleague, knows long before the publication of their thesis, much less the publication in a journal somewhere, much less before any other scientist even bothers, if they ever do, to check the results, that they have found a planet. That is the other thing about some scientific journals. Some are barely ever read. And if they are, only a small portion of those are ever checked carefully, which is to say the experimental results, where they exist, are checked, at least in a timely fashion. So some individuals or small groups of people can indeed have good explanations when others do not. The criticism has happened. Not in the way we are supposed to believe it can only happen in science, namely peer review, but rather validly and reliably in the mind of a single person or a small group of people. And criticism in science is indeed the way we make progress. It is the means by which we reject false theories and bad explanations and no explanations. This criticism, this critical attitude, is cashed out through experiments. But not only experiments, as I've emphasized already, it can be knocked down, full stop, over and out refutation without an experiment. And this is true in all subjects, in all spheres of knowledge, always. So how does it work elsewhere? So let me call the next section of this podcast, Critical Thinking Everywhere. We've said critical thinking works in science through a number of channels, the most obvious of which is the experiment. If something disagrees with your experiment, then typically, but not always, mind you, it means the idea being tested is false. But we can never rule out the fact that there are rare cases where it can also mean there is a flaw with the experiment, as I said earlier. But this split in frequency... More often, a theory is wrong when the experimental results disagree with it than the experimental results are wrong in some way and the theory is right, can tell you nothing whatever about which situation you are in when you encounter this problem. Anyways, as we said, experiments are not the whole story. We must ask, what is the accompanying explanation? If there is none, we have explanationless science. In other words, we have the facade of science, the thin veneer, an imposter, the shape of science only. Science is ultimately about explanations of the physical world, not experiments. Both, however, are necessary. But what about in mathematics? Well, there, experiments are typically not needed. Although there are kind of exceptions to this, especially in applied mathematics, or something like the four-colour theorem, which says you you only need four colours on a map to colour it so that no two adjacent regions have the same colour, which is kind of surprising if you've never thought about it before. Anyways, in a sense, this did require a sort of experiment. It was proved using a computer to check the possibilities in abstract space that were just too numerous for a human to do. Whatever the case, in mathematics, we less often speak of experiments as we do of proofs, which then serve as refutations or criticisms. A proof of a theorem is a criticism of its negation. Or, in mathematics, we might perform on a completely abstract inequality of some kind, a substitution where the result disagrees with a prediction of the theorem, a special case of reductio ad absurdum. Or if we know some result holds, like, say, Pythagoras' theorem, and we actually substitute in numbers, and it turns out the equality does not hold, we've found an error. Identifying an error is a kind of criticism, and that allows progress too, identifying and correcting errors in this way. If we have a general case we know is our best explanation, like the Pythagoras example, and a purported special case fails, we have a problem. 
Maybe we've disproved Pythagoras' theorem. More likely we've made an error in our substitution and subsequent calculations, or both. Basically, criticisms in mathematics amount to computations, i.e. workings and calculations, that show some theorem or some guess is wrong. I'll say that again. It is about showing something is wrong. And that is the role of criticism. I feel like I've got to labour the point. Criticism is about showing that and how something is wrong. And the criticism itself is accompanied by some explanation as well, a reason why that something is wrong. In history, just as in science to some extent, a new idea is put forth. In the case of history, it's a new idea about the past. We criticise it, which amounts to something like evaluating it against other known sources, other kinds of evidence. We're comparing our theories of the evidence to our new theory of what might have happened in the past. It is a clash, as in science, between theories, evidence and explanation. In music, that a combination of sounds is less pleasing than another is a criticism. The waste paper basket of the composer is filled with criticisms, which may indeed be inexplicit, but they're real, but how to come up with good criticisms. Here we find a crossover, and it is no accident. We are humans, not machines. We think we do not simply follow an automatic algorithm like a computer. How to come up with good criticisms? Well, we must create them. So criticism is a creative act. Creativity is needed. And in some sense, this then means that the critical thinking versus creative thinking distinction is, in a sense, false. There's no deep dichotomy here. It's all creativity of a kind. But while that is true, distinctions are useful. There is a species of creative thought that we designate as being critical. As I have alluded to, this critical thinking part is the stuff we have a lot of knowledge about. As such... There are useful heuristics, rules, about how to go about methodically in order to check your guesses, to identify errors and possibly correct them, to find the problems. And the thing about criticisms is we can always invent new ways of criticising. But there is a useful distinction here between creativity that is pure imagination and the criticism that restricts it. And when these two things work together to create something new, we have innovation. But aside from what we have said so far about kinds of criticism, those being experiment, the presence or lack of good explanations, the possibility of a proof or disproof, what else do we have? Well, we may just have so-called rules of thumb, things that seem to work, rules that generally are applied in some subject area or other in order to check if your new creation conforms to the standards expected in that area. Here I'm thinking more about artistic or engineering endeavours. But of course, sometimes new kinds of criticism are needed. A new way of performing experiments, say, or the invention of new equipment and so forth. Criticism, showing how something is wrong, can take quite the act of creativity, as we've already alluded to. But let us keep in view for the moment that critical thinking is at heart about showing how something is wrong. To what end, though? Well, to improve things. It could be to improve ourselves, quite literally, improve our own thinking, improve our learning, to get something right that we got wrong, to create a better product, whatever that might be. This is the purpose. And so what a wonderful purpose criticism serves, improvement and progress. Why it has such a bad name, I'm not entirely sure, but I guess it has something to do with two mistakes. 
One is the distinction made between so-called constructive and destructive criticism. The thing is, all criticism aims at destruction for the purpose of construction, or at least this is the ideal case. Criticism aims to destroy a less good idea to replace it with a newly constructed, better, truer idea. Of course, what people mean typically by constructive versus destructive criticism is more about tone. Constructive criticism is about being nice to someone that you're talking to, and destructive is about being mean. And so there is the concern related to this, that criticism might be applied to people. And here I completely understand the concern. One should always be careful to focus on the ideas, not the person. We are criticizing ideas, not people. As I like to say, people have ideas, but they are not identical to ideas. This is important. Of course, some people are emotionally wedded and deeply to some ideas. If we value those people and their feelings, then yes, we must ask them if they care for us to continue to criticize their own ideas if such criticism is painful to them. But these ideas are, in the broader scheme, details and not walls before us. When discussing progress in science, or mathematics, or philosophy, or whatever else is of academic value to us in the creation of knowledge, we must, as far as we possibly can, keep our emotions in check, and not let ourselves be hurt when critical thinking is applied to our own ideas. Those who do not wish to participate in the growth of knowledge should never be forced. We need not include them in this. The ethics of critical thinking is thus reasonably straightforward. It is about applying the method to ideas and not to people. And that method, attempting to show the ideas as wrong for the purpose of making improvements, is not well known. If I can offer some practical advice here, in discussions, especially in person using the spoken word, people tend to do this as a matter of course in the English-speaking world. It's more natural but not in the written word or not in the online world. The error is this, the use of the second person, namely the word you or any synonym. As soon as a sentence contains the word you, Y-O-U, you, things have become personalized. And if it's a criticism, then it's become accusatory. It's an easy shift to make in one's language, especially online and in the written word. You do this naturally, as I say, if you're just talking to someone, it's very rare to say you, and if you do say you to the person right in front of you, then it comes off as impolite, or well, the same as the way that it's read online. As I say, it's an easy shift to make. My own tactic is online to either drop the word altogether or to use the word one, O-N-E, one, especially in place of wherever I might otherwise use the word Y-O-U-U, whatever the case. Personalizing a discussion especially about abstract academic topics, is a criticism. So saying you are personalizing things by talking about yourself or myself doesn't work as well as simply ignoring whatever the claim about yourself or myself was and proceeding by focusing on the content. But this topic of how to have discussions is itself a whole other subject, and I've rarely found people are much interested in having it. One reason is, almost everyone thinks they are very good at discussion. Of course they are. They've been talking since they were toddlers. Why wouldn't they be expert at it by now? Well, one reason is that we are, all of us, inheritors of a particular culture. And some cultures, more than others, can have an accusatory way of speaking, which almost immediately degenerates into talking about people rather than ideas. It's very hard to bring such discussions back on the rails once they are off the rails. 
the criticisms then become focused on people's personalities or on the tone being used or any of a number of other personal attributes and completely away from the idea under discussion. Critical thinking is about criticizing ideas, not people. It can criticize the ideas people have, but that should not hurt people. Again, there are exceptions. Some people are religiously wedded to some ideas. To even suggest that the almighty spaghetti monster might not be an actual omnipotent being could be cause to hurt some people. But the reasons for that feeling of hurt can themselves be criticized without criticizing the person or even the imaginary god. It's a deep area, and this is merely a sketch of critical thinking. The substance of all this is, of course, not an idea that has originated with me entirely with any one person. And yet we can name one person above all others who has defined the field, Karl Popper. Perhaps more than any other person, this philosopher set out the scheme over a number of years in a variety of books on the topic. His books were never called critical thinking, and perhaps that is why they are not as well known in educational circles as they should be. In fact, he never explicitly talked much at all about learning, even though the content is explicitly about knowledge creation. Instead, he wrote books titled The Logic of Scientific Discovery and Conjectures and Refutations and Objective Knowledge, and he has come to be known as a philosopher of science and politics. And, of course, his contributions in those areas were as fundamentally groundbreaking and objectively progressive as Einstein's were in physics or Mozart's were in music. But for education... As I say, he explained how knowledge is created, that is, how learning can take place, and importantly for my purposes here, what the critical method actually is. His philosophy has come to be known as critical rationalism, and that is the philosophy of critical thinking. If he wrote Conjectures and Refutations today, he could quite easily retitle it without any loss of meaning to Creativity and Criticism, <laughs> something like that, be a bit more fashionable. But it is to me astonishing that Popper's critical rationalism does not now inform how cultures, communities, families, parents, and dare we say schools and universities help to improve learning. Children are, of course, natural learners. They are learning machines. They go out into the world and without any hang-ups or extremely few, without any fear or with very little, guess and check. They experiment the only reason they or any of us slow down is because we, like they, eventually learn ideas from authorities about what to be fearful of, what is the wrong thing to do, why to be scared and who should be listened to, and therefore why some things should not be tried out and tested. Over years and then decades, the ballast of all that bad, anti-rational, anti-critical ideas are learned taken on board, and then finally frame what a person feels they are permitted to think about and therefore learn. So some kind of explicit thinking about critical thinking can help later on to undo perhaps some of this. Popper got there. Popper identified how knowledge is created and therefore how learning must operate. But it is all written in a sort of ideal sense. It is in the sense of, if you do not have what are called these hang-ups, things you do not like thinking about or doing, these are caused by what David Deutsch terms anti-rational memes, ideas that hold themselves immune from criticism. Identifying and correcting those, well, that is very hard, and we would need yet another podcast all about that. 
As new as critical rationalism is on the scene, so new it barely gets any mention in any form whatever in the formal educational institutions, despite being the theory of learning as I say, the concept of anti-rational memes is newer still. But let's stick to the basics for the moment. How can we teach people who want to know about this critical thinking stuff more about it, especially young people? Well, firstly, don't. Don't teach them, as in don't force instruction on them unless they ask. That's part of the anti-critical problem. A person needs to have a problem in the first place, their problem. Someone has to ask you first for help. But when they do ask about something, then the conversation can begin about how we can come to know this thing, that thing, or anything else. And what I'm about to say comes with an important caveat I'll return to at the end. There is actually no formula to being a good critical thinker. There is no fixed set of rules, or even, as I will say, heuristics. There are some useful hints, but learning these by rote would be anti-critical. Any university can provide you with a list of critical thinking techniques. I think they're mostly largely misguided. Again, I'll come back to that. But what I want to do here is concentrate on criticism, broadly speaking. What are the modes of criticism that can be employed to actually help someone be a critical thinker rather than just achieve better marks or fulfill the requirements of some task undertaken at school or university which asks them to engage critically or use their critical thinking skills? Depending on the level that someone is at, let's consider a teenager. I find a two-step process useful in guiding the capacity to think critically about any topic whether it is something in the media, or something in a book, or something you are trying to learn, here's my two steps. Step one, assume that what you are being presented with is false. Step two, find out why. So those are my two steps. This is not to say that you will find out why it's false. That's just an assumption after all. In reality, many times what you are learning is the best present understanding of a thing. But the very act of trying to uncover what is false about an idea reveals what is most true about an idea, or nearer to true about an idea. If some claim fails to be refuted by your attempts to find out why it's false, in other words, if an idea survives your criticisms, you've learned a lot. Now, trying to find out why some idea is possibly false entails quite a vast amount of creativity. It requires one to create criticisms. You have to create them in your own mind, but happily there are well-trodden paths worn by great thinkers who have gone before. Philosophy, the best sort, is a toolbox of criticisms. So is your own background knowledge. And of course, there is the corpus of knowledge out there. You can check any claim you like against what else is known, and all of it in light of the deepest principles we have. Things that I have mentioned before, like whether there is a good explanation lurking behind it all. But if I were helping someone improve that general skill or set of heuristics we call critical thinking, I would ask them to begin by considering if the idea under review meshes well with all other important ideas. Is it strictly contradicted by anything you do know? If we cannot think of something, for example, if a news story says that a video has emerged from the forest of Canada purporting to show a non-human ape loose on a continent without apes, is the explanation that it is actually an ape, or that an error has been made? Are we contradicting what we know about apes loose in Canadian forests? Did it come from a zoo, or did it evolve there? Whatever the case, if we cannot find such a contradiction, or obvious contradiction, consider, does a law of epistemology contradict it? So, if it is a scientific claim, is it testable? But we can also consider, 
Does a known law of science contradict it? Does it demand an infinite supply of instant energy? Does whatever you're being presented with assume the laws of thermodynamics are false? For some other claims, especially in the political or economic realm, we can ask of it, is it immoral? On balance, would it force free and peaceful people to do other than they would want to? Would it coerce them? On average, would it lower the well-being of all conscious creatures? Does it entail theft? And here are some other useful guides to being a good critical thinker in the critical rationalist tradition anyway. Does the idea rely solely, or to a large extent, or to any extent, upon an appeal to authority? Are we asked to believe it because some politician, priest, scientist, book or doctor just says it's true? Do you understand the idea? That itself is a criticism. That does not mean it is false. But if you do not understand it and you have tried hard, this is a criticism of the idea in terms of its expression. It may not have been properly explained to you or it may not be sufficiently clearly expressed to you, which is related to is the idea being expressed in simple language? This is related to an even deeper criticism, perhaps the deepest of all. I would call it Deutsch's anti-rational principle. The question here is, does this idea hold itself immune from criticism? I'll say it again. Does this idea that you're considering hold itself immune from criticism in any way? That is fundamental. That entails almost everything else once we have exhausted everything else and have thought of, it entails, is it clearly expressed? Does it stick its neck out in its predictions about the physical world? Does it claim to know things that cannot possibly be known, like the state of the planet next year or in 100 years? Is it a claim so general as to be vacuous and thus hold itself immune from criticism? For example, there should be no pollution, or the children are our future, or do what is right. So these are some of the ways criticism works. There are many, many more. One could consider the long and interesting list of so-called logical fallacies that can be found in many places on the internet. Just consider as many ways as possible that the idea is lacking or false. If it survives all of your attempts to criticize it, then it just might contain something worth knowing. It could still be false, of course. We expect even our most cherished explanations to turn out false in the final analysis. Things can always unexpectedly turn out false. You just might not be imaginative, that is, creative enough to find out what its flaw is. But you have actually used a critical method to try to knock it down. You have thought critically. But your failure to find a flaw could simply be a failure of imagination. Some famous philosophers like to use a phrase similar to, we cannot imagine how it could be otherwise. Like, for example, we cannot imagine how there could be any other basis for morality than conscious creatures. Or, we cannot imagine any way in which the speed of light could be exceeded. Or pick your most cherished so-called self-evident truth. One's very human and subjective failure of imagination is neither an objective proof or disproof. This is what philosophers at their best do as their business. What they should do, anyway. What many, okay, okay, some have done in the past. Philosophy, as I have said many times, and as is echoed in the work of David Deutsch, indeed has today a deservedly bad reputation. So much of what marches under the banner of philosophy is not really anything of the sort. Philosophy as a subject ranges from the focused study of all that is rational in the most careful and deliberate way through to the more esoteric, and through, yes, to utter nonsense. Philosophy, most broadly considered, is a mess. 
In this subject, it is as if we were to call astrology, creationism, and ghost hunting science, along with biology and physics, as if we were to call the sound of a riot in the streets music. Such redefinitions would be a serious problem for the term music or indeed science, but it would do nothing whatsoever to actually bear upon the question of what is true or not in, say, physics. That would still be adjudicated by the critical methods of experiment and theory I have already outlined. So although you may hear that Karl Popper was a philosopher, and that epistemology and critical rationalism are kinds of philosophy, this does not mean they are mere opinions. They are rigorous formulations and sets of intertwined ideas, themselves criticised and refined over many years, and which explain, above all else, how knowledge grows and what techniques are best in sifting good ideas from bad. That is the topic of critical thinking. Critical thinking is about showing what is wrong with ideas so that better ones can be produced and we can get ever closer to the truth by discovering more of it. We understand much about this critical process, about critical thinking, that so many people who use the term critical thinking appear never to have even heard of Karl Popper, let alone critical rationalism as a worldview, has absolutely zero bearing on what critical thinking truly is. It is what it is, as physics is what it is, even if some people who know next to nothing about it claim to. But so far, we've only concentrated on half of the story. Let me now get to creativity, creative thinking, the little we know. Here is where we must again delve into philosophy. We must use our critical faculties to sift what is known from what is merely hypothesized or hoped for, uncoupled from reality. Here is a rule of thumb, again due to David Deutsch. If we can understand something, we can program it. Okay, allow me a moment to unpack that. Here are some things we understand to greater or lesser degrees. We understand simple arithmetic. We know how to add numbers, subtract them. We can divide and do things like factorize. Indeed, we know we understand all this because we can program and then build electronic calculators that do all of these things for us. We have understood much of this for millennia. We understand Newton's laws of motion and his theory of gravity. We can program a computer with virtual solar systems and with those calculate where a planet will be at any time from now to a thousand years hence. The formula that allow us to do this have been known for centuries. We have some understanding of chemical reactions as well and geological processes. We can program computers with these things too and make some predictions. But here is something we understand far less well. How economic markets work. This is not to say we understand nothing at all, but we know far less than most people seem to think. We cannot, in the scientific sense, predict the behaviour of markets well at all. And indeed, we have good explanations as to why such prediction is beyond us. The complexity, for a start, is too great for us to capture with any simple mathematical theory that could be represented in a computer system. Or a better way of framing this still is, free markets especially, contain inherently unpredictable components because they rely on the choices that people make. And people make choices based upon the knowledge they create. And that knowledge is a genuine act of creation. Which means anyone purporting to predict markets is pretending. They are prophesying. They are saying they know what people are going to do. And when I say markets, I mean free markets, of course. We can kind of predict what will happen in the long run to any controlled market. It fails. And a vast majority of people end up in poverty and starving. We know this because a controlled market cannot correct the errors that the authorities controlling them are making at a rate faster than they're making them. The authorities are much slower, always slower, than what the supply and demand changes that occur in the market are. But I digress. 
in free markets, there are not only too many finely tuned variables, most of which we don't even know, which come to bear on prices and so on, which make prediction intractable. But that many of the variables depend upon, again, the inherent unpredictability of people who are knowledge creators. The multitudinous feedback mechanisms at work here are explained in a very approximate way by economic theories that themselves, if they are at all any good, explain why predicting markets, not only now but forever, is completely infeasible and indeed always and forever intractable. Just for emphasis once again. This is because a truly predictive model of a market would have to account for the free choices people make, and that would mean predicting what a person does, despite what some economists, sociologists, psychologists, philosophers, or neuroscientists might attempt to imply, this is something we cannot do, nor should we desire to. Does this mean market speculation and buying shares and investment broadly and so on is a lost cause? No. One can have a bad slightly less bad, or a good, or even no explanation whatsoever, of what makes a particular company successful. And one can investigate the people in those companies. And although there can never be any guarantees, a scientific type prediction cannot be made. Good explanations about products, services, management, and innovation in companies can absolutely inform speculation. It is called speculation for a reason, and it takes deep knowledge in order to be able to make the right investment at the right time. And although predicting the behavior of a genuine free market is impossible, day to day, week to week, or year to year, the long-term trend of a free market should be for increasing wealth. But this is only ever over the long term, and even a theory that takes into account freedom, optimism, and technological improvement can never guard against the unknown entirely. Disaster can always lurk just around the corner, and, this is key, what is not in a free market, unlike in a controlled or planned market, is coercion. Coercion always and everywhere leads to ruin to a greater or lesser degree. Because coercion is not inherent in a free market, a prediction we can make is, in the long run, a free market economy will always outperform, for a greater number of people, a planned economy. But that theory is a theory about theories. It is a meta-economic theory. And the reason it is true is because in a free economy, people are more free to be more creative. Everything is more free. So how can we improve this creative thinking, which is so important for creating wealth, which improves everyone's life, which is supposed to be the topic? Well, sadly, this is something we know only a very little about. Indeed, one is tempted to say we know next to nothing about it. Human creativity is a truly unique feature of the world as we know it in the year that I am making this, 2021. But human creativity is not the only type of creativity. There's at least one other I'm aware of. Evolution by natural selection. Evolution by natural selection creates new species by a similar process of guess and check. Or rather, in that case, specifically, mutation or variation and selection. That is a form of creativity. But it is not conscious. It is not thought through. Human creativity is intelligently designed. Biological creativity, the opposite. It is utterly blind. That kind, the biological, is a physical process where genes are rejected by the environment in which they find themselves. If a gene works, it is kept by an organism until it doesn't, and the organism dies. And if that happens enough, the gene, along with its host species, goes extinct. Genes are the unit of selection, and nature is what criticizes. Genes might survive the criticism or not. 
A criticism of a gene might amount to the environment changing in such a way as to restrict water, that is to say, a drought happens. In this case, the gene may not survive. Variants of the gene that code for, say, the capacity to survive in less water will survive because the organism survives. In this way, variation within a species leads to speciation. A new species, more drought-resistant than the one before the drought, evolves and survives. But I do not wish to push the analogy too far here. Human creativity and the growth of knowledge approximately resembles this process. A new idea is kind of like a gene. It is typically a variation on an old idea, as a mutation is a variation of an older version of a gene. Most gene variations, mutations, are bad. Most new ideas are bad. But now and again, a variant is actually better. It survives the criticisms. In biology, this process is all automated. It is simply an outworking of the interactions between unthinking genes and an unthinking environment. But in people, things are quite different. The basic idea is the same. New things are criticised. But the means by which those new things come about at all is very different. New genes are mutations, and we understand how mutations occur. It is bad copying, and there's all sorts of reasons for this. It could be something as prosaic as a cosmic ray, a particle of light, which hits the DNA and changes it. But how does human creativity work? Here is what we seem to know. Human-type explanation creativity is about making a variation to an existing idea. One cannot wholesale invent ex nihilo, as we say. It does not come utterly from nothing. At a minimum, the idea has to at least be expressible in some form, natural language, paint, a set of numbers. So there has to be some pre-existing thing, some human creation there for one to adapt. But then what? We don't know. And that's the truth. We don't know. If we knew how it was we created new ideas, then just as with programming an artificial solar system in a computer, we could program a computer to do it, to come up with new ideas. And this, by the way, is why we do not have computers that can think. This is why we do not have artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence or AGI, whatever you want to call it. The problem is not the hardware, the physical stuff that the computer is made from. Silicon Valley remains ablaze with the idea that somehow via Moore's law, the idea that computer power, speed and memory is doubling every 18 months or so, is going to precipitate AGI. As though faster computers that can store more stuff, or the internet itself, is about to come alive and start learning. As though it is just a matter of speed and memory. This is completely false. It is not just wide of the mark. It's not even shooting for the right target. So the problem has nothing to do with speed or memory. That is, it has nothing whatever to do with hardware. It has everything to do with software, with the program. We have no program of thinking, which is to say, we have no way of programming general human creativity. We don't know how it works, unlike with arithmetic or the laws of physics, or even to some extent the theory of natural selection. We don't know how it works, unlike arithmetic or the laws of physics or how chemical reactions proceed most of the time. We can, broadly speaking, program those things into a computer and simulate them, but we cannot simulate thinking, which would be thinking, because we don't understand it. And this also refutes the notion, by the way, that even if you think it is about software, for example, that lots of software AIs, which is to say specialized or narrow AI or dumb AI, linked together in some way will all somehow add up to a general intelligence, as if general intelligence is just lots of special intelligences. But it's not. It's a single unique program for generating explanations. That's what artificial general intelligence is. It's not lots of AIs. It's a single AGI. Very different things. Opposites almost. Single AIs are 
things that can do one thing or linking 100 together, a thing that can do 100 things. AGI has no upper bound on the different things that it can learn, so long as it continues to exist. So here's the thing. We have to understand in fine detail how generating explanations, being creative, which is to say how to replicate thinking works in us before we can program computers to do it. It is not the case that one day we will find a thinking computer and then wonder, how is it doing that? No. First, we will have an explanation of how thinking works in us, in people, and then we will know how to program a computer to think. So here is the corollary to all that. Because we do not understand how new ideas are actually generated, which is to say we don't understand how people think, and we know this because we cannot program a computer to think, we cannot hope to improve the creativity of people because we do not have a theory of how creativity works, even approximately. So I've sketched here the basics of what we do know about creativity, namely, next to nothing. We know creativity, at a minimum, involves variations on ideas already there. But beyond that, we know very little else. And all humans are indeed creative. All of them. Even if they appear not to be using their creativity. This, after all, is what humans at a very fundamental level are. Creative beings. If fish swim and spiders bite and birds fly and the proverbial scorpion stings, we create. That is what we are. And if I were to grant in a steel manning sort of a way that some other animals like higher apes demonstrate creativity, and I do not grant this, but if I did, it is orders and orders of magnitude lesser and of a different kind. But see my other writings on the differences between humans and other animals for that. So let's briefly consider our creative luminaries, like Alan Turing, who invented the theory of the computer, eventually leading to the building of one. Albert Einstein, who explained the general theory of relativity, allowing for the GPS system. Salvador Dali, whose melting clocks gave us a surrealist and disturbing insight into our experience of time. Amadeus Mozart, almost the Einstein of music, whose technical versatility was able to conjure more sound in strange new ways, forming deeply emotional music, unlike so much that had come before. If we could explain how any of this was actually done, we could reproduce a computer to do it, or teach a child to do it, but we cannot. A child teaches us what they can do, just as Turing, Einstein, Dali and Mozart taught us. We do not teach them. And could you imagine daring to suggest to any of these masters that we possess techniques to encourage creative thinking? They were creative in those areas because they were fascinated by problems in those areas. Problems they personally found interesting for very personal reasons. Any one of us could do what they did if only we were just interested in those problems but most of us aren't. So what would they have needed to improve their creativity still further? Here is perhaps all we know. Freedom and time. That's it. Freedom to explore any idea, technique, or method they liked. Freedom to explore those ideas when and where they pleased. Freedom to do what they were most interested in and passionate about. And time, time to do this, whenever they needed it. Now further, imagine you said to Einstein, to be well-rounded, Einstein, you need to spend this time now playing some of Mozart's music on the piano, and this time now learning a little poetry, and this time now learning to speak Cantonese. That'll be useful for you, Albert. All this time taken for Albert Einstein to do this? Maybe we wouldn't have GPS right now. Imagine forcing Mozart to learn more algebra or chemistry. Would this help their creativity or not? The point here is not that those subjects would be utterly useless for those people, it is that we would be choosing for them. Einstein apparently did actually value his violin almost above physics, but he chose where to play it and when. 
iterative cycles of creative thinking, creative being undirected adaptations of existing knowledge, coupled with critical thinking, critical thinking being criticisms of those undirected adaptations in order to trim the false from the closer to true, all of this critical and creative thinking together is the way that learning occurs. This is what we know. It is important to emphasize that this is a process that goes on inside your mind and it's not a mere physical activity of neurons, although it is also that, it is not primarily that. This is why learning is not part of the purview of neuroscience, any more than art is within the purview of physics. And let me explain a little bit on that because I know there is now a neuroscience of learning, which is completely misguided. It's kind of like this. I know some physics. I know some physics about light and color. I can explain something of the interaction between matter and energy and how different substances, when they're excited by energy, be it light shining on it or thermal energy heating it, it might appear to be green or red or blue or some combination thereof. I know about these processes. That's physics. But just because I can explain some of that does not mean I know anything at all about the light and shade as used in art. The two ways colour are used in the two subjects have something to do with each other. Of course they do. But expertise in one does not necessarily constitute expertise in the other. My understanding of the physics of light does not in any way enable me to be able to explain how light should be used in a painting in order to either make it look more realistic or to convey a certain mood or feeling. That is a whole different type of knowledge at a different level of emergence and complexity. So it is here. Again, talking about fashions that go on in education, presently we're hearing much about how so-called brain science, brain science might inform learning, as if they haven't even learned the distinction between the mind and the brain. It's all overblown. We never learn much from MRI scans of the brain or what neuroscience has learned about some new structure identified in the hippocampus. When I say we never learn much, I mean we never learn much about learning, and we never will. For the same reason an artist, expert in painting, is not going to learn much, ever, about how colour is generated by the interaction between photons and electrons around atoms. It's the wrong level of emergence. It's the wrong kind of complexity. To be more specific, the artist is interested in how paint can abstractly represent other physical objects. The physicist is concerned solely with the physical objects in themselves. So it is here. The epistemologist or psychologist interested in learning should be concerned with how a person is able to take pieces of knowledge and recreate it in their own mind through the process of creative and critical thinking. At no point do we need to refer to neurons and neurotransmitters, the prefrontal cortex and the synapses, that is, the physical substrates in which the knowledge is embedded, not in order to understand learning. It's not that it's entirely irrelevant. For now, wet brains are the sole objects in the universe we know of that can actually create explanatory knowledge. But to think it is of fundamental importance, that the hardware is a certain way, is the wrong direction entirely. It really is like thinking that if you're having trouble using your word processing program, that a better understanding of the silicon chips inside of the computer might just be what's required. The study of silicon chips is, of course, crucial to understanding computers as a whole. But not all problems with computers are reducible to silicon chips. And so it is very much with minds. Not all our ignorance, for example, about how learning works best, when it comes to the mind, is reducible to what aspects of the brain, like neurons, neurotransmitters, synapses, and the brain regions are doing. Indeed, only a tiny minority of ways in which one might improve one's own mind will be usefully informed in this way by neuroscience. The distinction here really is one of software versus hardware. Confusing the two leads to much confusion. Okay, so here are my final thoughts, my 
critically creative conclusions, or perhaps creatively critical conclusions. And presumption aside, why would I go with one word order over another? Critically creative, creatively critical? I don't know. My reasons are actually opaque to me. One sounded much the same as the other. Putting creatively first seemed even more presumptuous than putting critical first. I'm suggesting that anything I write here is actually creative. False modesty does no one favours. This has been a truly creative act, the entire piece. And yet, it is not a wholesale creation ex nihilo. It never is. This here is an adaptation of many ideas, most of them I'm getting from David Deutsch, who himself, of course, gained them in part from Karl Popper. I struggle, in fact, to find anything I write here completely unique, and that is not false modesty. And I'm sure if you asked Karl Popper, he would say, oh, I was just riffing off someone else. But perhaps my application of these ideas to the rather narrow topic of how teachers tend to teach and how teachers themselves are taught might be a little bit different. So I do not even now know, which is to say I do not understand, I'm not aware of, how I came to create what I just did. I just do it. Given the time and motivation, ideas flow when I'm interested. Isn't this what teachers should desire from the students they are ostensibly supposed to teach? From people we want to learn a particular lesson. What did I personally need in order to do this here today? To actually be somewhat creative? Freedom, like I said before, and time. And were I forced to try and be critical or creative about, let's say, Russian literature, I would not, as I explained in my piece on learning that I mentioned earlier. So there is a deep problem with the attempt to actually teach critical and creative thinking skills using techniques simply called critical and creative thinking. Now, at no point should it be thought that I'm trying to disparage attempts to improve educational systems. Everyone who wants to add another subject to the curriculum is motivated, I guess, by the right thing of trying to improve things. And I agree that we need something like a revolution, but I don't agree with what that revolution would look like. And what I see actually going on is nothing of the sort. I see the same terrible errors and patterns occurring year after year after year. When I say revolution... What I mean is out with compulsory schools where they exist and out with the tradition of just sending your children off to school as if it was a childcare center. But I'm also a realist. This is not going to happen within any time frame I can reasonably foresee. And for the moment, it is safer to just hope for incremental progress and do what we can in speaking about this and encouraging others to continue to work on alternative systems for the nurturing of children in better ways. But in this narrow area of critical and creative thinking, as it is currently presented in schools and universities, let's be critical and speak clearly and plainly and tell the truth. The truth is that lip service is paid to this notion of critical and creative thinking in education systems. It's just being named and then teaching strategies deployed which are called critical thinking skills or creative thinking. A very typical example of how critical thinking might be taught around you can be found on your local university website. Just Google critical thinking and your local university. See what pops up. Typically, you get a checklist of techniques, approaches to text, processes to go through in order to analyze something. For example, usually a piece of writing. Now, there are certainly some worthwhile questions they often consider in these things, questions about the relevance of evidence, say. I'll provide a link in the description to this podcast for what my local university, the University of Sydney, has to say about this. I'm not picking on them. 
I've looked at many university websites. They all say roughly the same thing. I think because they all come from a certain educational culture, there's probably some original source out there where they're drawing all this stuff from. The important thing to notice is that the overall motivation of such schemes belies the fact they miss the central point that critical thinking is or should be about criticism, about criticizing stuff. And one might even begin with criticizing these schemes themselves. By the way, children actually do this. They object to the lesson. They object to the class. They object to the methods. And of course, teachers label such objections behavioral issues. Genuine critical thinking, in the most pure sense of the word, is regarded as an unwillingness to learn. Of course, what that really is, is an unwillingness to learn what we have to teach as well as the way we are teaching it. A student who objects to the teaching going on is being a critical thinker. Schemes that attempt to prompt students with helpful guides to assist with analysis tend to, as I say, lock in ways of thinking rather than allowing for truly novel approaches that a student might take. Now, teachers listening might object to me. Hold on, these schemes are just recommendations. They're supposed to help you. And I agree. But let's consider. Help with what exactly? What are these schemes for critical thinking trying to achieve? Well, according to my Sydney University example you may wish to refer to, their critical thinking skill sheet explicitly says it is at least in part about how to, quote, achieve better marks, unquote. And perhaps that is, of course, the whole point. That is exactly what it is designed to do. Formulaic techniques can indeed do that because there are recipes to the way exams are written. There must be simple rules to follow in order to achieve well in them. But passing exams, getting good marks, these are not critical and creative thinking. Following certain rules to get good results on a test is the absolute antithesis to creativity, which is the flip side of the coin. Teaching so-called critical thinking in that way, using some recipe of techniques, stamps on creativity because the very purpose, stated explicitly as in this case, or at least implied by the lessons, is that we are here to pass tests, to meet standards and objectives, to fit a mould, to not create something truly new, but to, best we can, meet the outcomes. Our child rarely gets to create their own outcomes, except outside of school, unconstrained by marks, reports, expectations and rules. Now, it should be said, within school, some illusion is given sometimes about students personally devising outcomes. But I've argued elsewhere this is merely playing in shallow waters when there's a deep ocean to explore. We must not lie to ourselves. The purpose of lessons, truly, is to pass exams and get good results for so long as the education system remains the way it is, roughly the same as it has been for centuries. We have tinkered at the edges, and more tinkering is required and will happen, but it is no revolution. And calling things critical and creative thinking that truly are not does not help. It disguises the problem. It is problem denial, not problem solving. People in classrooms do create. They are sometimes actively engaged. Anytime they learn something new, it is truly because they have created that knowledge in their minds anew. A student who did not know before that the square of the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the squares on the other two sides has created that in their mind. And if they know how, if they can prove it, they've really learned something. What they've done in learning that is attempted to criticize it. And without a good criticism, they tend to end up taking it on board as part of their corpus of personal knowledge. And they're regarded as something they, they can then say of it, I know this thing. So to a large extent, creativity and critical thinking is certainly going on in classrooms. You actually can't stop it, but you can stunt it. 
You can stunt it in all manner of ways. School teachers, university lecturers are in a peculiar situation of being asked to maximise the very thing that the system they are working within is bent on minimising. The theory is, help maximise critical and creative thinking. The practice is, minimise both, because that is how tests are passed. Creativity. The word is everywhere. It's a wonderful word. It's a wonderful concept, like innovation. It is the key to civilization, but we don't really understand it. It would be great if we could learn, that is to say, teach ourselves, to be Elon Musk or Albert Einstein or Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart if we wanted, but we don't understand how creativity works. No one does, or we would all know. Creativity is a word that fills compulsory coercive schooling. And although I have argued the system is flawed, I do think at least talking about the word is good, if we do so honestly. This indeed is incremental process. This is better than actually telling students explicitly not to be creative. Teachers rarely do that anymore, is my guess. Though I may be wrong. But I know the system is set up to implicitly warn them against genuine creativity. After all, they are there, ultimately, to perform well in assessment tasks. Critical and creative thinking is absolutely crucial to learning. It is essential to knowledge creation both at the level of the individual and as a society. It is how progress actually happens. Current ideas, our best ideas, are criticised strongly, constantly, as harshly as we can. Not because we dislike them necessarily, but because we love them and the best we can do for them is to improve them. Have them lead to the birth of new ideas, new creations. And we have to admit when we are not quite sure about how aspects of this process works. We have to admit when we are ignorant, because only then can we allow a truly important creative insight to come about. A genuine, explanatory theory of creativity. And when we have that, we can teach that. But until then, let's not pretend our schemes can do more than they really can. Credit. This article is based in large part on the ideas found in the books The Fabric of Reality and The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch. The Beginning of Infinity in particular has entire chapters devoted to creativity, its evolution and significance. The Fabric of Reality has a number of important chapters about the role of criticism in science. Both books are not only explorations of these concepts and the growth of knowledge, but also examples of creativity and critical thinking in practice. Not only educators, but all people interested in these issues should take the time to read those ideas. They can be bored anywhere you can buy books, of course, and there's audio versions of both. If you've enjoyed this podcast at all or found any value in it, you might like to wish to find me on Patreon and support me. My name is Brett Hall and my podcast is TalkCast. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.